Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi, everyone. It's Kareem, the voice of Simon Fairchild and the Eternal Tavern Keeper. Today, I'm here to tell you about The Programme. The Programme audio series is a science fiction anthology podcast set in a world where money, state, and God are fused into a single entity. Every episode is a standalone story featuring ordinary people inhabiting this extraordinary world. And for them, it's not this future that is terrifying, but our present. The program is sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, but it is always smart. Find out more about the program at www.rustyquill.com or www.programaudioseries.com or search for The Program Audio Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have fun and see you later. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 11 Dreamer
statement of Antonio Blake regarding his recent dreams about Gertrude Robinson, previous head archivist of the Magnus Institute. Original statement given March 14, 2015. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, current head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. First off, I should admit that I lied to get in here. I know your criteria are very clear. Any supernatural or unexplainable experience or encounter occurring within the realms of apparent reality. No out-of-body experiences, visions, hallucinations, or dreams. And this is about dreams, make no mistake. But I think you need to hear it anyway. Whether you believe it or not, well, that's up to you. I just don't feel like I could rightly go on my way without at least trying to explain myself. You see, I had a dream about you. I know how that sounds, and I can assure you we don't know each other, but the Institute, the building, even this room. I saw them in my dream as clearly as I see them here before me now. So no, I don't have any tale about a shambling horror in the dark. I ask you to read on, though as this wasn't the sort of dream you just ignore. I should probably give a little bit of background about myself, rather than just gibbering about dreams and prophecies. I've lived in London for almost a decade now. I came here to do my undergraduate degree at the London School of Economics. I ended up taking a position with Barclays shortly after graduating, and did well enough there. It didn't last long, though. I barely made it through a full year before the stress of my new job, not to mention some problems in my personal life, led to me having a full nervous breakdown. I'd broken up with Graham, my boyfriend of six years, and had to leave the home we shared, going to stay with some of the few friends that had survived my year of stress-fueled outbursts and constantly cancelled plans. It was there, sleeping on my friend Anahita's sofa, in the depths of my misery that I first started to have the dreams. I found myself standing atop the very peak of Canary Wharf and overlooking the Barclays building, where I had spent so many hateful hours. Behind me, I could feel the pulsing beat of the light that stands atop that looming tower. It thrummed through me, and I could see the glow pass across my skin like oil, but try as I might, I could not turn around to look at it. It was then that I noticed there was something wrong with the city below me. It was dark, lit by the sickly orange glow of the street lamps, and there too something pulsed oddly. Looking down, I could see a web of dark tendrils crisscrossing the streets and crawling up the buildings. They were like blood vessels, thick and dark, some as wide as roads and some as thin as a telephone wire, and they all throbbed in time with the beat of light behind me. I needed to get closer. Lucid dreaming has never been a skill I've possessed, and I generally get swept along in the current of whatever runs through my sleeping consciousness. So it came as something of a surprise when my wordless desire to get closer became manifest, and I moved forward. Even more surprising was that my forward motion brought me over the edge of Canary Wharf's roof, 
and I fell. I plummeted I don't know how far until I hit the ground with a crack. I would have expected this to wake me, but instead I simply lay there, spasmed by dream pain. You know, the knowledge of pain without the white heat of nerves. After some while, who can say how long in sleep, I became standing again and started to move through that veined orange hellscape that I knew to be the city. As I moved, I will not say walked, for that would not be quite correct. I saw people, not many and not moving, but they were there. They leered like photographs, overexposed and washed out, caught and immortalized in a single instant. Each had those tendrils wrapped around them, pulsing against their stillness. One had a thin black vein that snaked around her arms and appeared to vanish into where her heart would sit. Another, an older gentleman in a dark blue suit, laid on the ground with a beating mass the size of a tree trunk crushing his legs. And the face of each and every person I saw was that same rictus of surprise, pain and terrified confusion. I had never dreamed like this before, and I knew there was something in it beyond my own reeling consciousness. Eventually, my wandered drifting led me back to the Barclays building. Something inside me wanted to go inside to see what it was like in this rhythmic, fleshy dreamscape. The lights were on, but they were a sodium vapor orange, like those outside as with all the other lights, their brightness pulsed in and out in that beating world, which seemed to rule over all this place. The desks were set up as I knew them to be, but there were no people that I could see. I took the stairs as something about the thought of riding the lift filled me with a cold dread. It was 23 floors to the office where I worked, but if I even had legs in this place, they were not what carried me up that stairwell. It was there I found my own desk, clear and empty as I had left it some weeks before. I then knew all at once that there was something in the small office next to me. I felt it in the rhythm of my dream, and I carried myself across to see. It had been the officer of my old line manager, John Oozel, and he was inside. One of the dark black veins had snaked in through the window and seemed to have suspended John two feet from the floor, wrapped lightly around his throat. Like all the others, he was still, an image held in place, dangling and hanged by this pulsing mass of otherness. I awoke at that point. Normally a nightmare would leave me a sweating, wide-eyed mess, but that morning I felt invigorated. It came to me that while the dream had in all ways appeared as nightmarish, I had never felt any true discomfort. Even my fall at the beginning had been curiously lacking in any true distress. I tried to put it from my mind as I searched through the job sites, but something about the dream lingered, like a foul odour that you only smell when you've stopped thinking about it. I hadn't seen John Oozel in several months, 
He had left the company some time before my breakdown, and I had never known him that well. But the image of his face in my dream wouldn't leave me, so I resolved to find out why he had returned to my mind in such an odd manner. For whatever reason, the idea that there might be no cause for his appearance, that it might be entirely incidental, never occurred to me. I had been offered the chance to return to Barclays after my rather dramatic departure, once my mental health was in a better state. But at that point I couldn't even take the Docklands Light Railway as I'd get a panic attack whenever I saw the train hit Poplar, and the looming figure of the Barclays building in Canary Wharf came into view. I had declined the offer, but I still kept in contact with some of my now ex-colleagues, so emailed a few of them to see if they knew how to get in touch with my old manager. It didn't take long to find out the truth. John Oozel had apparently hanged himself, following the loss of a bitter custody battle with his ex-wife. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that this shook me deeply. Again, there was no question to me that it may have been coincidence. I knew, I still know, that what I saw in my dream deliberately mirrored his fate. I don't remember my dreams for the next few nights, but I do remember that I had that same dream again the following Saturday. It was the same in every detail, except there were different people. Some remained the same, but others were new or had disappeared, and those that I remembered had faded, like wallpaper left too long in the sun. Again I began atop Canary Wharf, with the light pulsing behind me. And once I was down, I found myself able to traverse the city at will, watching all the figures wrapped in those throbbing veins. I returned to where John had been, and sure enough, there he remained, though faded to the point where, if I didn't know who he was already, I could not have identified him. The tendrils that wrapped his throat were as dark as they had ever been, though. Knowing now what I did about John, I could see the deaths of each poor soul I saw as I wandered through the dream. The dark vines would clutch the head of the stroke victim, the lungs of a cancerous smoker, and would bury the car crash victims under the vastness of their bulk. I did not go towards the hospital, as so many of those thick and rubbery lines led towards it that I could see no space within that was not choked with them. These dreams have been a regular part of my sleeping for about eight years now. Even as life improved and I found a new job and place to live, believe it or not, I now work selling crystals and tarot cards in a magic shop. They continued to crop up a few times each month. If there's one advantage to working where I do, is that I've been able to read every book on esoteric dreaming ever written, but none of them even come close to what I have experienced. I tried to make peace with the dreams for some time, reasoning that as long as they caused me no discomfort, they were harmless. This worked fine until I saw my father in the dream, walking down Oxford Street, the pulsing veins climbing up his leg and into his chest. I tried to warn him, of course, asked leading questions on his health and how he was feeling, whether he'd been tired recently. I even went so far as to book him a doctor's appointment, much to his annoyance. It did no good, though. Ten days later, the heart attack came for him, 
and despite the rapid response of the paramedics and how much of his medical history I had immediately to hand, there was nothing I could do to save him. He died on New Year's Eve, and as 2014 ended, so did any hope I had of my dreams doing good in the world. It took a month and a half for my father's image to fade from the orange glow of the street lamps in my dream London, and by my estimation he had appeared about ten days before his death. I tell you this because I feel you have a right to know the sort of timescales that we're dealing with here. I haven't had much of a chance to experiment or see anything more specific, I'm afraid. There are so many people who die in London, and I know so few of them. But I recognize you. As I write these words, I can see you in the other room, eyes locked on whatever book you're diverting yourself with. I recognize you from my dreams. They said at the front desk that you review all the written statements, so I can only hope that you take the time to read through this one fully. Allow me to explain in a bit more detail. It was the night before last that the dream came again. It started as it always did, with me on top of Canary Wharf. But almost immediately, I could feel that something had changed. The dull orange glow that thrummed up from below seemed muffled, somehow, and there was an oppressive knowledge within me that something was deeply wrong. Looking down, I could see that the veins, whose domination of the dreamscape had only ever been partial before, had thickened, and now seemed to cover almost the whole space of every street. They still pulsed as before, but rather than pumping their dark, unknown cargo invisibly, there would now sometimes be seen a dark red light that travelled along the inside of them. I thought I saw this red light illuminate faces and shadows within those tendrils, but it moved too quickly for me to be sure of any details beyond the direction. This was not something I had ever seen happen before in these dreams, and I was aware that I had two choices, to follow the light to wherever it might lead, or to turn and retreat into the waking world. I decided to follow the path of that scarlet glow, though I found I was floating some distance from the ground so thick were the vines below. I followed them for some time, how long exactly I couldn't say. I never seemed to travel faster than walking speed in these dreams, and yet the distances I covered as I passed through the orange twilight of this pulsating other London seemed far further than the time it took to traverse. Such is the way of dreams, I suppose. All I know for sure is that I realized after some time that the red light was leading me towards Vauxhall and the Thames. There were fewer people visible here. Did rich people die less? Or perhaps they just had greater control over where they died? Or maybe they just couldn't be seen? fighting off death for so long that when it came at last, its icy tendrils covered every inch of them. I crossed the Thames, and the bridge was knotted high with the flashing vines. One or two of them seemed to pass through the river itself, and the occasional flash of red could be seen beneath the water, but most of them were laid across the bridge. Finally, I saw the destination of the blood-tinged glow. 
a small building, standing alone the other side of the bridge near the embankment. I couldn't have told you what the street was called, the London of my dreams has no street signs. It was old, pillared, and possessed of a quiet dignity. It was this building into which all of the veins flowed, every door, every window was solid with them. When the bursts of red light passed into it, the whole building glowed crimson. I could see a bronze plaque next to the door, not quite covered. It read, The Magnus Institute, London, founded 1818. I entered, though I couldn't tell you how. The veins blocked every possible entrance entirely, and yet I found myself moving through them. I saw the corridors, these corridors, choked with that shadowed flesh, and passed through them, following that red light that would now pulse so bright that I knew were I to see it awake it would have blinded me. It led me to a room, the label of which was still visible, and read, Archive. I entered to see walls covered with shelves and cabinets stretching off into the distance. These shelves were coated in a sticky black tar, which I knew at that moment was the thickened, pulpy blood that pumped through each and every one of those veins. At the front of the room stood a desk, and the veins were wrapped around it so tightly and so thick that I knew that this must be where they ended. Getting closer, I realized that there was a person sitting at that desk, and it was them that all of this scarlet light was flowing into. I could see none of the figure's body beneath the flesh that enclosed them. But as I moved around, I saw the face was uncovered. It was your face. And the expression upon it was far more fearful than any I had seen in eight years of wandering this twilight city. That was when I awoke. I'm well aware that I don't even know your name and I have no responsibility to try and prevent whatever fate is coming for you. Based on my previous experience, such a thing is likely impossible anyway. But after what I saw, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't at least try. I did as much research into your institute as possible, and arranged an appointment to provide a statement about some spurious supernatural encounter. Even then, I was told that the archivist only reviews the written statements once they have been taken. So here I am, pouring out my lunatic story on paper in the hopes that you might eventually read it. If you do see this in time and read this far, then to be honest, I don't know what else to tell you. Be careful. There is something coming for you. I don't know what it is, but it is so much worse than anything I can imagine. At the very least, you should look into appointing a successor. Good luck. Statement ends. I'm sure I don't need to explain how disquieting it was to find this statement tucked into the recent archives. I'm not entirely sure whether to bring this up with Elias or not. When he hired me, he was vague on the point of what happened to my predecessor, Gertrude Robinson. 
I asked if she would be available to train me up for a handover, but he simply said she had passed away, and not to worry about it overmuch. Actually, now I think about it, his exact phrase was that she died in the line of duty, which I had assumed meant having a stroke at her desk or something similar. She was quite elderly, I believe. I mean, I don't believe in the predictive power of dreams, obviously. But still, it's a deeply unsettling thing to find. I had Tim look into it, as I don't entirely trust the others not to have written it as a practical joke and slipped it into the archives. Unsurprisingly, he came up with nothing. Antonio Blake is a fake name, and all of the contact details provided were similarly fraudulent. It's almost certainly a joke. A bit of hazing for the new boss, maybe? Best not to engage with it, I think. Still, I might have a word with Rosie, to make sure I get a copy of any new statements as soon as they're made, not just once the researchers are done with them. She seemed very open to the idea of recording them, so I'm hopeful she'll be willing to do this too. If this is genuine, well... I have no idea if Gertrude got the chance to read this statement before she passed away, but if anyone comes in ranting about dreaming my death, then I very much want to hear about it. End recording. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell and Murray Porter and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
Hello listeners, this is Anusha Battersby of the Magnus Protocol, letting you know about the latest Rusty Quill original podcast on Neon Inkwell, The Pit Below Paradise. The Pit Below Paradise is a US coming-of-age tale set years in the future, in the ruins of a burnt world. Small communities struggle in the ashes, and in Paradise Village, Dorian is set to sacrifice himself for the hope of a better tomorrow. At least, that's what he thought. But when the date of prophecy is pulled into question, Dorian's whole world is turned on its side. Forced to attend college to keep up appearances, Dorian meets Will, a former gravedigger with no reason to suspect his vibrant new roommate might soon be facing death, and Ruth, a returned runaway trying to make peace with the past. As Dory only just starts to learn about herself, she is forced to choose whether she still believes everything she was told growing up, or whether she wants to place her trust in a wider, more daunting world that she's only just come to know. The Pit Below Paradise is available now on Neon Inkwell, our ongoing home for full cast fiction podcasts, written by creators from all around the world. Just search Neon Inkwell wherever you get your podcasts.